Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to have you with us and particularly pleased to have Dr. Mandy Cohen with us. She has become one of the most uh, visible faces of uh, our newsmakers in recent time. And I, I guess I could start off by saying, Dr. Cohen, the last time we talked, there was very little talk about uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. And uh, so uh, I, my first thought is to ask you, did you ever imagine when you took this job in January of 2017 that you'd be facing this kind of a set of circumstances? Well, first, Don, great to be on with you um, again. And no, I couldn't have imagined. I didn't know that this is what I was signing up for back in January. Um, but look, the, the risks have always been there. I think a lot of good foundation work had been done to make sure we were able to respond. But this is unprecedented. This is a, a, a challenge of literally a lifetime uh, for all of us and had certainly turned us all uh, upside down in almost every aspect of of everyone's life. Um, and, you know, we've just been trying to do the best work we can to use science and data and evidence to, to make good decisions and try to protect the people of North Carolina. So uh, just as an overall view, where do you think we stand now? And uh, uh, if you were to give North Carolina a grade on how mm -hmm. we have reacted, what kind of grade would you give us? Yeah, so as we are here in the beginning part of August, I actually see um, some progress that we've made and some some optimism on where our trends are headed. Um, over the last two to three weeks, we've started to see a decline in cases um, and a stabilization in our overall trends. We've been very public about talking about our numbers. I do them every week for the press. You can see them every day on our dashboard. And the good news is, is that they are right now moving in the right direction, which is good, but just just a start of it. And so what I would say is that we've been making progress and you can track it back, this recent progress, you can track it back almost directly to the time when Governor Cooper said, we all have to do face coverings as a requirement. So about three weeks after he put that requirement in place, we started to see the improvement in our trends. So I really think that that is working. It's why we've done some additional things to um, to really focus on prevention. So governor said no alcohol sales after 11 because we were seeing some restaurants turn into bars, for example. And we know that's a place of high viral transmission. So I think all of that has allowed us to make this progress. And look, we look around to our other southern states. They're not doing well. Um, they are overwhelming their healthcare capacity. They're seeing huge, huge spikes in their numbers. We haven't seen that here. So, you know, overall, I'd give us a pretty decent grade. But what I would say is this project, this progress is fragile. It takes yeah. constant work to continue yeah. to, to be on that. We, we, it's not a one and done, unfortunately. It can't be like, oh, we've got it. We've beat it. Um, we have to keep at it, which is what is so hard. And, and I know frustrating for many about this virus. Well, there's a great Southern term, keep the pedal to the metal. And uh, I think that's what we need to do. You know, one of the things I have observed in just going out to the, the, the amount I get out is the number of people who are wearing face masks now just seems to be far more uh, universal and people are accepting it. And I am I'm growing accustomed to wearing a face mask. And I've got a few friends who say that they, they still resist it. And I say, well, why not? I mean, you know, what... Let's look at it from the other point of view. What harm can it do? 
and and it's in, it's cheap, right? With all of the expensive things that we are are needing to deal with because of of this pandemic, face coverings is probably one of the cheapest things we can do. Um, it helps our economy, and I think it is truly helping our numbers. And we want to make that economic progress. We want to get back to making some additional progress, and importantly, we want to make sure that our our kids are getting back into the classroom. That is that is certainly a top priority. And I know a number of districts have decided to go with remote learning. Uh, but I think the more we can drive down our numbers, the more of those districts that are going to feel comfortable going back in person. And I certainly want to see more in-person instruction. Well, I know you have two daughters, uh, about five and eight or five and seven, something that's, of that nature. That's right. That's right. Six and eight. She, one yeah. just had a birthday. <laughs> uh, and so she's feeling all grown up. So, uh, you know, let me ask you a couple of questions that I've had on my mind for some time. Uh, has it surprised you the what seems to be to be a large number of people who test positively but are asymptomatic? Is that a surprise? I think it is certainly more um, than, than I would have expected, considering the severe nature of this virus in some people. What, what, has, what is so hard for me to wrap my head around is that some people can get so, so, so sick from this virus, and then other people don't even feel like they have a cold. And that is just so... Uh, you know, hard to wrap your mind around as, as a physician. And, and we don't have a really great sense of who is it that's going to get really sick and who is it that's going to be asymptomatic. We have some idea in terms of risk factors. Folks who are older, 65, have more chronic diseases, obesity, asthma, uh, but it's not across the board. We still see younger people, you know, completely healthy as far as we're aware, who get very, very sick. So it is it is really um, we still have a lot to learn about this virus that I think we're going to be learning over a number of years um, and, and look back at this time and say, you know, you know, we're learning as fast as we can. But I think we have a, a much more learning to do. Well, I've, I've been keeping up with the statistic, and it seems like the number of hospitalizations seems to be at least stabilizing and maybe even going down. Uh, what do you? How, how do you read that? Well, I think that's a good sign. So hospitalizations is something that I've been saying is a lagging indicator, meaning it lags behind some of our other trends that might start to look positive. So I expected that to start to stabilize because our our cases have started to stabilize and started to go down. So now, two, three weeks later, we start to see hospitalizations do the same thing. Um, and I expect our, our death rates similarly to start to decline. That is the most lagging indicator death is than of all of our metrics. Um, so I think overall that's painting a complete picture for us that things are stabilizing in North Carolina, which is good, but I'll reiterate that it's fragile. We have to keep working at it to keep those trends uh, work going in the right direction. Are, do our hospitals have enough supplies at this point in time? How is the supply chain? Yeah, hospitals are doing well. We talk to them constantly um, in terms of their ability to have capacity. They have protective equipment. The thing that our hospitals need more of are lab laboratory reagents or the chemicals and, and the materials that you need to actually process COVID-19 tests. I was just on the phone today with a hospital CEO who said we could do thousands more tests if only we had more reagents, but those reagents are being very much limited uh, by the manufacturer because there just aren't any. And it goes back to the fact that we really haven't had either the visibility into the supply chain around lab 
lab uh, reagents and other supplies. We don't really know where all of those lab reagents are going throughout the whole world. Um, and we also don't have that national purchasing strategy. Um, we haven't used the Defense for Production Act, for example, around uh, our, our testing supplies. Um, it, it's why um, Governor Cooper joined with um, a number of other governors last week in a consortium of states, uh, red and blue states, to say with Maryland, Massachusetts, Louisiana, uh, to say how do we can we pool our power together to think about this supply chain issue. So mostly hospitals have what they need, but this lab laboratory supply is still a problem for hospitals, um, and so we're working working on that with them. Now the vaccine front seems to be uh, the news that I'm reading and hearing about seems to be very positive that. We seem to be ahead of the game there. What do you see? You know, uh, again, optimistic, but I, I will caution folks to say, I think there's still a lot of science to do here in terms of really understanding the, the vaccine, uh, its safety profile and its effectiveness. I think it's very good to see the number of companies that have jumped in, have really accelerated things. There's a variety of different vaccines. Um, there's really only one of them that I have seen the deeper data of, that's the Oxford trial. Uh, that is that they basically used a past coronavirus vaccine, modified it a little bit, and then are now using it for COVID-19. Um, so that is the, probably the furthest along. I think that looks good from a safety perspective. I think we're still trying to understand what does it mean in terms of effectiveness? Does it actually prevent you from getting COVID-19 if you get the vaccine? So a lot more science still to do. I know a lot of the trials are, are being held here in North Carolina. They're enrolling. So if you're interested, please go to uh, check that out and potentially enroll in a vaccine trial. But there's a lot more science still to do here. So uh, let's assume that we, uh, let's jump ahead and say we get the vaccine. And of course, I understand the government is is buying some uh, doses of these in mm -hmm. Which is, which is smart because the worst thing that can happen is we throw it away. Uh, so uh, let me ask you this. How will the process go about deciding, uh, other than healthcare workers and frontline people, uh, yeah. how the vaccine is distributed? Have you started working with that at all? We're just at the beginning of starting to think about that. Obviously, we're still in the throes of response in terms of focus on testing and tracing and helping folks isolate. Um, so vaccine, we definitely have a group of, of folks we have pulled together to start to think through those issues. I think you're right in saying it's good. We're getting a jump on manufacturing them, but then we have to distribute them and then create protocols and think about the entire infrastructure of the vaccine uh, deployment. And I think that's, that's a lot of work ahead. And we're just, just at the beginning of thinking about that. So how long would it take to vaccinate, uh, say, most of the people in North Carolina? I, I think it depends on what the vaccine looks like. Um, what I'm hearing mostly is that the vaccine will actually be two doses. So you actually have to think about tracking someone, not just for that one vaccine, but then to come back at the right time, I believe 30 days later for a second vaccine. So that adds a layer of complexity. So I don't know that I could speak to yet uh, what that would look like in terms of how long would that take. I think it's a matter of resources, how many will be available over what period of time, and then what other federal and state resources can we bring to bear to get that to as many people as possible. So a lot of unknowns still there to, to work through as we, we uh, look ahead to the future. Our guest is Dr. Mandy Cohen, and uh, we are talking to her, of course, about COVID-19. 
And we will be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was gonna do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. She just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Dr. Mandy Cohen, who is the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services of North Carolina. Very familiar face if you've been following the television coverage of uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic that we're having. And in our first segment, we talked about a number of issues. I had a couple of other questions that uh, I wanted to ask you about. We, uh, we talked about the high number of asymptomatics. Is there any real basic difference between the SATs in North Carolina, between the urban and the rural areas that you've seen and been able to detect so far? Yeah, we, we collect a lot of data across the state. And so I'd say it varies. I'd say our urban centers, not surprising, have a lot of people. It means they also, when people are close together in, in, in more densely populated spaces, it's more likely for the virus to spread. So I don't think we've been surprised to see just pure numbers of cases be higher in the Charlotte area, in the Triangle, in the Triad area. But if you actually look per capita, right, and you actually normalize those numbers, a lot of our rural areas have been quite hard hit, particularly our agriculture belt. Um, and I'm looking, um, you know, it's our Cumberland, Sampson, Bladen, Duplin, um, Robison area of the state that we know heavy agriculture, heavy meat, meat packing, meat processing plants there. Uh, so we are seeing those counties experiencing a high rate of viral spread there. It's why we have surged as a state. We've surged a lot of testing access in those kinds of counties in particular. So we are seeing fair amount of viral spread per capita in some of those uh, uh, rural areas and particularly that agriculture uh, uh, belt right there. Uh, let me ask you another question that I've been intrigued with. I, I know a number of people who have tested several times. When we talk about how many tests we've given, are those uniques or are those the total number of tests? Yeah, great question. Uh, so when there, there are two different kinds of numbers, when we report our positive numbers, those are unique. 
Those are unique numbers. Um, but when we say, well, how many tests have we just run in North Carolina, then we count all the tests that we have, have run. So if you've gotten five tests over five months, if you only had, if you had two of those that are positive, only one of those would show up in our positive numbers. But all the tests that we've done do show up in our numbers because we do want to get a sense of how many tests are we running across the whole state. But we want to make sure we only capture one positive per person, even though we know sometimes people will get repeats. But I will say you do not need, if you are positive, you do not need a repeat test to know that you are no longer infectious. We have very good guidance to say about 10 days, um, we know that you're not gonna be infectious anymore after a positive test. And I know certain businesses were requiring a test, a negative test to go back. You do not need that. We have guidance on our, our website that conforms with the CDC guidance on that point. Well, we mentioned earlier that you have two daughters and we, uh, of course, lots of the folks who are listening to this program have children that are in K through 12 schools, and, and we're trying to get the schools back into some uh, form of uh, providing education again. What, what's your overall view on, on how we're doing, and uh, uh, when can we expect maybe to get more back into the classroom? Yeah, it's a great question, Don. These are this is probably one of the hardest areas. And I think we are still learning more about the virus and its impacts on children. Um, we know that children get. COVID less often, they get less sick and they transmit it less, but how much less, right? It's less than adults, but they still get sick. Kids still get COVID. They can still get very sick with COVID. And unfortunately, we've already had some child deaths from COVID here and they they can transmit it to others. So we have to balance the, the great positives of in-person learning that we want to capture, but the known risks. And we also know that in schools, it's not just about the kids, it's also about the teachers and the staff and making sure we're protecting the adults as well. That's why when we as a state and the governor put his plans forward, we said, let's get back to in-person learning. We just want to do it with the maximum amount of safety precautions possible. Um, and that's what you saw in, in our protocols. But, but we know that that is still a, a challenge for many school districts. And I know they are working through the operational pieces to make those safety precautions possible. Um, and, and so I, I hope to see continued progress, but that's why I'd go back to, you know, our trends are moving in the right direction, which is good. We need to con see continued progress in order for, I think, schools to continue to feel comfortable to move forward with in-person learning. Now, we also, of course, have colleges and universities and community yeah. colleges trying to get back. Is there a difference actually in the approach that you take between colleges and universities rather than K through 12 schools? Yeah, there is a different approach and it's really because the colleges and universities have dormitories and it is really the dormitories uh, that are places where where we are more concerned about viral spread right when you live in close quarters and there's sharing of of, of air um, where you're living i think that is more concerned in addition to the risks of being in person in class so there's the in classroom risk for higher ed and universities and colleges and then there's the dormitory risks and then i think a third bucket would be sort of the sports um, and other activities 
associated with higher ed. So I think we're trying to look at all three of those. We have guidance. CDC has guidance. Um, you know, look, I think there are risks uh, in higher ed, uh, but I think all of the, I know the universities have been working hard on protocols to reduce that risk um, and make sure that things, um, that, that they both put those protocols in place, but also if they see some viral spread to be able to jump on top of it and slow or stop that, that outbreak really quickly. Well, you know, one of the things, of course, that happened uh, uh, and it may still be happening is the fact that the, uh, uh, the the kids, and I call them kids, between 18 and 24 maybe didn't take this thing quite as seriously. And, of course, that is the college group. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you think there's been progress made there? Are they seeing, uh, are you seeing any evidence that uh, this age group is beginning to catch on and say, wait a minute, this can't affect us? Yeah, I mean, I will say our numbers still show that most of our new cases are in younger people. Um, and I think that's the fact that those of us who are older uh, know that we have more risk and are doing more to protect ourselves. But I'm, we're hoping that the young folks in our communities understand that them spreading virus among themselves does affect all of us, no matter your age. Um, and having more virus spread can get into our nursing homes. It can get into um, all parts of our our community. So, um, you know, we are trying to be partners with our university systems in this. And I know they are trying to work hard with student student codes of conduct and honor codes and, and such so that folks are really taking seriously the three W's, which are so important. But look, I was 19 once too, I get it. Um, and so, but, but I think this is a, a unique time and everyone needs to take this, this seriously. Long term, uh, what have we learned from this that may help us? Uh, let's assume that we get the pandemic under control and so forth. What have we learned long, that's going to help us long term in uh, taking care of the health of, of our American people? Yeah, oh, Don, we have a lot of lessons to learn here. We we could we could do a lot better than we have been been doing, and the numbers show it. Right? You look at us compared to other. Um, countries that are our peers is like we're doing worse and so there's a lot of lessons to le learn here some of it is like how do you prepare on the front end and have the things that we need but it's also how do you have national unity and alignment of policies but I also think that that's where N North Carolina has fallen down right right out of the gate we are weaker as a state because we didn't expand Medicaid. We didn't have more people insured, meaning more people having their chronic diseases under control, getting access to care. So, you know, we, we also as a country have this patchwork of healthcare policies of different, you know, depending on what state you live in, you have access to care or you don't. Um, and that puts us as at, at at a deficit, I think, as a nation. Um, and we haven't had that sort of national cohesion that where everyone up and down the leadership is saying, here's the plan, here's what we're gonna do, here's how we follow it. Um, so I think there's a lot of lessons that we're gonna learn here. I also think that that in an a crisis, you learn things that I hope will permanently change how we move forward. I think we've been adding a lot of telehealth to the way people access their doctors. I think that's great. I hope to see that stay um, as, we, as we move forward. I think that um, you know everyone is getting exposed to a lot more understanding about data and science. You know, and some some think of themselves as amateur epidemiologists. I, but I think good, really good that that folks are really understanding the science and data and how that shapes our 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 decisions and why it's so important to invest in health. So uh, I think we will learn a lot of lessons here. Um, but 
But, um, you know, there's some lessons we can learn right now and put into action that we are trying to, uh, to do to make sure that we're the strongest we can be here in North Carolina. Well, I know your time is limited and you've got lots of things on your plate. And so I want to uh, thank you very much for being with us. And as we sort of wrap up this broadcast and this time with you, let's go over those three W's and, and talk about how important they are and, and how what an impact they've had on keeping North Carolina uh, on this path that we're on, which is a positive path. That's right. It's working. So, right, that the good news is, is like your hard work makes a difference here. So the the wearing a face covering, waiting six feet apart and washing your hands, the, the classic three W's, um, it works. Science tells us it works. Our own data shows that it's working. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not a one and done. We have to stick with this. And I know folks are weary of this whole virus and want to be done with it, but it's not done with us. And so stick with the three W's um, and we will continue to make progress here in, in North Carolina and we will beat back this virus. So I see the light at the end of this tunnel, but it's going to take hard work on all of our parts to get there together. Well, we certainly appreciate your time. And by the way, we certainly appreciate you spending good time with my good friend, Tom Campbell on North Carolina Spin Public Television each week. That's been very helpful. And uh, you've just been a godsend to us here in North Carolina. We're so glad that you're with us. And again, thank you so much for all your hard work and that of your department. I'm sure everyone is working hard and long hours and, and uh, we'll all get through this. We'll all thank get you. Yes, and I do want to thank you for acknowledging the team. This is a huge, huge team effort. I know folks mostly see me on TV, but there are thousands of thousands of people working on this response effort, both at the state and the local, um, our, our counties and local health departments. So thank you for that. Thank you to those working on the front lines of this at our hospitals and other clinics. So, you know, it's all hands on deck here. And thanks, Donald, for that. And do your three W's and stay well. Thank you again. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. And now we welcome Michelle Sanders with us on Carolina Newsmakers. She is the secretary of the North Carolina Department of Administration, and she came to that job as uh, an appointment of Governor Roy Cooper on January 12, 2017. She's a native of Bellhaven, North Carolina. And uh, 
a graduate of North Carolina State University and uh, also spent some time at Piper University where she got her uh, Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry and a Master of Health Administration. Uh, so, uh, Michelle, and by the way, we, we were kidding her earlier about the fact that she sells Michelle with an A instead of an I, so uh, God bless you for that. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> the different way of, of spelling it. Well, uh, I, how many people correct it and, and want to change it when they're talking to you or writing you? Um, I haven't met one yet that hasn't wanted to change it or spell it with an I. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about your department and give us a little overview of what you do as the Secretary of the Department of Administration. Sure. As the Department of, as the Secretary of the Department of Administration, I am responsible for um, leading and overseeing government operations within North Carolina. And also, we have um, a responsibility of advocacy for our underserved communities across the state. So the Department of Administration has um, quite a few diverse functions, and that is what I enjoy most about the job. It includes state parking, motor fleet, uh, state property, our purchase and contract section, um, on our government operations, and there are some other divisions as well. And then in our advocacy arm, we have a council for women. We also have our American Indian Commission, um, our historically owned and utilized businesses. And so with the combination of government operation and advocacy, it gives us uh, a bit of breath to serve the residents of this state across many um, many sectors and across many agencies as well. Now, I know you're a strong supporter of diversity and inclusiveness and, and currently the chair of the North Carolina Commission on Inclusion. Let's talk a little about what that uh, commission is doing and, and uh, uh, what is your goal there? Yes, the Commission on Inclusion uh, came about from an executive order which the governor um, implemented. And the purpose of that is to identify and implement practices that would enable state government to be more inclusive, whether that is in hiring or that is in our way of operating and serving our residents. Um, because we all know and recognize that North Carolina with almost uh, well over 10 and a half million people in this state, um, we have to serve a diverse population. And not only do we recognize and celebrate diversity, we want to put forward policies and practices that include everyone and that we're working for in a way that the state will work for everyone. Um, you know, I know what it's like to be excluded for um, various reasons. And I also know what it's like when you're included or you're in a culture that values inclusion. And when you're in a culture that values inclusion, it actually brings out the best in people. It also helps to um, speed up our problem solving and it also brings about innovation. Most importantly, what our residents are looking for, I believe, not only those services we provide, but trust. And when we are in a culture that values, celebrates, and it really acts in a way of inclusiveness, it can build trust between our government as well as the residents of the state. 
and our state employees who um, are the valued resources within state government. Um, well, we so the, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, so the commission, commission has put forward some policy ideas as well as other programs that we have implemented and we continually um, bring in various uh, entities and organizations to share best practices with us um, that we can try to mobilize around and bring about to our state government. Well, you know, we've talked about this with a number of different people on this program from over the last several years, that North Carolina is an interesting state and it creates interesting problems for your department as well as state government. When you look at the fact that we've got 20, 22 counties that are just growing just by leaps and bounds, and we've got another 75 to 80 counties that are in either a, a period of no growth or actually decline, and that creates interesting problems uh, all the way around, and I'm, I'm sure you focus on that a lot. Yes, it does create interesting problems all around. Recognizing that 80% of the state um, is rural, um, and with the influx of various people that we have coming into North Carolina, um, we want the best for all residents. The governor has put forward a vision for this administration in the state, and that is that we are, our residents are better educated, healthier, and that they have more money in their pockets so that they can live an abundant and prosperous life. And that is for every resident of the state. Now, in saying that, we know that each town and, and each county has its own personalities and these unique traits about them. For example, where I'm from, Bellhaven, uh, grapples with um, access to health care, uh, jobs, and having good paying jobs that will allow you to not only have your basic needs, many jobs don't, even with the minimum wage, you can't get your basic needs, um, but healthcare, um, education, having access to quality education, regardless of your zip code, if you're in 27810 in Bellhaven, or if you sit in Cary in 27519, we want all children to have a quality education. So there are complex, um, integrated problems that we strive to solve and within the Department of Administration, as we work with our residents, um, we have to consider each situation that goes on across the, the state and the demographics. Um, in order to provide the best and superior customer service, we also have to be able to understand and empathize with the needs of those residents. So in saying that, as we go about our hiring practices, we look for a, a diverse um, a group who we hire and can bring in, um, and ones who can really help us in identifying even better ways to help this growing population and changing dynamic and changing demographic in North Carolina. Uh, you know, I don't know what made me think of this, but I, I, well, I do know what made me think of it. I've read an article about it over the weekend. We've got a census going on right now, and uh, North Carolina is a little behind in our census count as far as uh, getting the job done. And yet this is very important for uh, a number of ways that basically will affect the Department of Administration and state government because so many 
federal programs are based on per capita or how many people you have. So I want to put a plug in here for uh, seeing if we can get the census count up a little bit. Oh, yes, I am so glad you mentioned that. Um, I am the chair of the North Carolina Complete Count Census, and we are seven weeks away from that census ending. Um, as of Friday, 40% uh, of North Carolina households had not completed 2020 census. Now we recognize that COVID-19 has had an impact and um, uh, across the world and the state, but unfortunately we've also um, been faced with some challenges from federal government. Uh, the president recently uh, signed a memo which would change our um, end date for census participation from October 31st to end of September, which is seven weeks away. Um, in addition to that, there has also been language to, um, to not include our undocumented residents uh, in the nation and in the state. And we know that this is a constitutional right for all residents, regardless of your citizenship, your race, ethnicity, or anything else. So we're also challenged with those, um, those I guess, statements and memos and documents, which can create fear as well as shorten our time frame. But this is critically important to our state, as you know. The uncounted residents that I mentioned, the 41% of those households, the 4 million residents, puts at risk $74 billion over the next decade for North Carolina. That is $7.4 billion per year that we would miss out on um, at the rate that we're going. And, and you know, that money is used for healthcare, education, highways, community services, economic development, and more. Um, at a time like this, when we have such a high unemployment rate, we are faced with a pandemic, we are getting our children back to school and trying to figure out that. All of those topics, all of those things are ones that this census money funding from our federal government which we've already paid into through taxes, um, will benefit us. And so I'm asking everyone to please take five to seven minutes. It's safe. It is accessible online. You can go to my2020census.gov. Uh, census can be completed this year on your mobile app. You can fill out the paperwork or you can go online. You can also call by phone. And I'll give two numbers. One is in English, 844-330-2020. The second number is in Spanish, 844-468-2020. It takes less than 10 minutes. And everyone listening and tell others, you can be a part of help shaping the future for North Carolina at least the next 10 years. And boy, do we need it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you explained how important this is, uh, and I appreciate you taking time to be with us. And we've got one more segment. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back right after these messages with our guest, Michelle Sanders, who's the Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Administration. We'll be back. You stay tuned. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? 
When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Is this tree good for climbing? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Michelle Sanders, who is the Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Administration. Delighted to have her with us. She has a big background in the private enterprise with companies like Biogen, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, and others. And she's been in this job since 2017, serving the citizens of North Carolina. And uh, 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 Madam Secretary, uh, Jason Kong wrote a note down for me to be sure to talk about the governor's executive order 143. So how about you talking about it? Okay. Executive order 143 is um, focused on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. The Hispanic Latinx communities, the Black and African American communities, and American Indian communities. Within this executive order, the governor uh, implemented or incorporated the Andrea Harris Social, Economic, Environmental, and Health Equity Task Force. And um, I'm not sure, Don, if you know Andrea or remember Andrea Harris. Andrea Harris is a longtime um, activist and advocate for North Carolinians, um, especially in the, with the focus on economic stability and um, prosperity for our business and small business community. And so she also was the founder and CEO of the Institute, which is based in Durham and has done great work for a number of years um, to help our economy grow and thrive specifically for communities of color. So it's an honor to chair that task force. Now, while addressing equity issues for a more inclusive North Carolina has been a priority, of Governor Cooper's administration, this pandemic has highlighted, certainly highlighted, uh, long existing systemic disparities that are embedded within our healthcare and our economic institutions for communities of color. And the virus has underscored the disproportionate impact of this virus. We know the virus doesn't know borders, races, ethnicity, or states. It, you know, there's no boundaries there for this virus. But what we do know, and it shouldn't be a surprise, is that the communities of color have been disproportionately impacted. Um, you know, the Hispanic Latinx make up an estimated 10% of our population of North Carolina, 
but represent 44% of the cases uh, statewide where ethnicity is known. The Black and American communities uh, estimated 22% of the population in North Carolina, but represent 24% of cases and 33% of deaths related to COVID-19. And our American Indian communities make up 2% of the population in North Carolina and represent 1% of the cases. Now, um, those numbers and that data is readily accessible and may be changing as we speak, but these disparities between the percent of total population and the percent of total cases and deaths show a disproportionately high impact. Our, our white residents make up more than 70% of North Carolina population, but represent 56% of cases and 58% of deaths. So again, it's having a statewide devastation, yet the health inequities and and uh, they're there. And, you know, we were having a conversation earlier about the importance of uh, in economic and economic growth and, and economic basic foundations and fundamentals for communities to thrive and to have opportunities. And um, this is exactly what this task force will do. The task force will be focused on economic stability, disparities, eliminating health disparities, and achieving environmental justice in North Carolina. And we will do that with about 35 members of the task force who are stakeholders, ex experts in these areas, um, and community advocates, as well as state government employees. And um, we've identified our guiding principles. I'll just mention the first one to you, which is put people first. We're gonna put people first as we focus on our subcommittees. Five subcommittees are noted in Executive Order 143 for this task force. One, access to healthcare. Two, enhance patient engagement. Number three, economic opportunity and business development. Four, environmental justice and inclusion. And the fifth is educational opportunities, not just general academia, but health literacy, financial literacy. So you can see we have our work cut out for us, but we are gonna focus on short-term and long-term goals, short-term being things and actionable items that we can move forward on in the next couple of months. Um, and we are excited about the work. The first meeting was August 5th, where we had um, an expert, Angela Glover Blackwell, who spoke to us. Um, and we are eager to put forward policy changes, recommendations, and actions that the state can take under the governor's leadership uh, to improve the lives, not only of these communities of color, but everyone. And now before I go, I, you know, I want to just mention that during our first meeting, we, we actually had exposure to an article called The Curb Cut Effect. And that article highlighted and reflected to us, um, you know, on the curb where we have the uh, downward, almost like a little ramp for um, wheelchairs to go down and it makes it easier to push a rolling bag off of a curb. That was implemented and came from advocacy for 
um, our disabled um, uh, residents and people who needed to have that curb there to keep from, you know, having the adverse effect of falling off of a curb if you have a wheelchair or if you're needing to have a ramp down. But though that was the primary reason for it, it has helped everyone. We all look for that curb cut to walk down. We roll our luggage down. We roll our book bags down. Um, we get our grocery out of the store in the cart to use that curb cut. So the work of the task force, I am hoping, and I believe we'll have that same curb cut effect. Not only will we work to lift communities of color, but we are working to eliminate and reduce the risk of public health issues by the lack of health care. We're wanting to lift those people up, have economic stability so the economy can thrive for not just some North Carolinians, but all. We're looking to achieve environmental justice for communities of color, but we're also looking for that achievement of environmental justice to help all North Carolinians. So indeed, the task force has a lot of work to do. We're excited about it, but we're gonna do some great work and make great things continue to happen in North Carolina. Wonderful, that, that is a great summary of that. And uh, Michelle Sanders, Madam Secretary, we appreciate you being with us, Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Administration. Uh, and uh, just a, a great informative session with you and, and also with Dr. Cohen earlier on the program. So we're delighted to, to spend this time with you and thank you so much. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that, carolinanewsmakers.com. If you happen to be listening to a station that carries only the half-hour version, both segments are available on carolinanewsmakers.com. program has been produced by Jason Kong, and we'll be back next week with another interesting guest. And uh, so we'll look forward to seeing you then. Next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.